Hi, everyone. I am with Ellen Dixon for this, our fourth episode of our CSA Fireside. I'm Benjamin Fraser, the chairperson of the CSA, proudly Jamaican, resident in Jamaica, born and bred in Jamaica. And I'll allow Ellen to introduce herself. Fantastic. Uh, Benjamin, thank you so much for having me here today. Um, that was a greeting in Te Reo Māori, which is the indigenous and official language from the nation that I am from, Aotearoa, New Zealand. Also a couple of islands, but on the opposite side of the world to where Benjamin is from, um, in the Pacific. Oh, recording is in progress. Um, and yeah, I am the national president of the New Zealand Union of Students Associations, um, which is a fairly old organisation involved in, in student unionism for very many years. Um, I've also been a representative for two terms on the Global Student Forum Steering Committee, uh, where I represented for Australia, New Zealand and Canada, um, who have very similar histories. So that's why we sit in that group together as consociate members. Um, and then also was outreach to the Pacific Islands and to Asia. So been an interesting career of student politics and um, always a pleasure to engage and first and foremost apologies for my uh, voice it's a little bit croaky because I've had a bit of a lung infection so I'm um, sorry about that. Uh, we're so happy that you're still with us despite you know that with your health thank you so much. Oh, it's a pleasure. So it's a pleasure. you told us a little bit about the New Zealand Union of Students Association tell me about some of the achievements of the NZUSA. <laughs> yes, everyone always says it sounds like we're part of the USA and the way that our um, our name is structured. We're, we're not. So um, we're one of the oldest probably national unions in, in the world. We're almost 100 years old and we formed in 1929. Um, and that was strangely enough, due to an inter-rugby uh, tournament <laughs> that happened between some of our universities where the students who were meeting thought it would be a good idea to form a union. Um, we have a number of different achievements, but um, a lot of our history is, is connected with um, social protest and things like that. Um, picketing all sorts of the traditional student unionist types of models of things. We were particularly active during the period of the 1970s through to 80s, where we did a lot of protests that aided and supported the identity of the nation as a whole, including the Kohanga Reo movement, which is the Indigenous schools movement, which we were in support of, uh, also in support of the Kingitanga, which is the Māori, the Indigenous king. Um, we were part of the anti-war protests around the period of Vietnam, including specifically working to oppose conscription. Um, we opposed the Springbok tour, um, which was the South African rugby team who only allowed for um, white players um, as opposed to our team who were typically those of European descent and Polynesian descent uh, during the period where Nelson Mandela was imprisoned um, and New Zealand wrote numerous letters to advocate for him to be freed and oppose apartheid um, and we've been quite active in anti-nuclear testing in the Pacific region as a whole. Um, recently we've been more involved in sort of like um, areas of like dealing with student debt campaigning, um, of which is at 16 billion New Zealand dollars, uh, which is quite high, um, opposing the user pay system and neoliberalization of the education sector as a whole, dealing with the cost of living crisis due to um, high prices on rent and housing, inability 
to pay for food as students when you're getting an education. So those are more of our contemporary issues. Um, we've had some significant issues and pushback from government since 2011 where our funding models were changed. So our protests have kind of changed in the way that we focus. Um, we've always been very active <clears throat> as a national union. Um, we were originally involved in the sort of international union movements from the period of the 1900s onwards. Um, so we were in the group that was specifically for colonized nations when that first began. And then again, in the international student union movement that existed in the 1970s through 80s, where we sided with the US funded side rather than the USSR funded side. Um, and then we also helped set up the University of the South Pacific Students Association. So we've been very active in the Pacific. Um, and we're also a member, funnily enough, of the um, Commonwealth Students Association founding member in 2015. So um, a lot happens in that space. But one of the biggest things that we, we recognize is that a lot of our politicians come from our movement. Um, we numbered six or seven in cabinet recently under the Jacinda Ardern government and the current prime minister is also from our movement so um, we recognize we represent a diversity of students from unis to polytechnics to institutes of technology and what we do is to try and collectively engage our very diverse publics and bring together a sort of movement that represents us all in, in the voice of what we want to see for the future of Aotearoa so quite an extensive uh, list of things that I've put there but it's a bit about us. This might seem like such a basic follow-up question, but I'm, I'm quite intrigued. As the sitting president, do you take a year off from your academic studies or are you managing this portfolio along with your core academic studies? along with my studies in my case. You don't technically have to, you can take a year off, but I'm, I'm a PhD student and um, <laughs> I need to continue doing my research at the same time. So <laughs> that's where we're at. <laughs> Oh, wow. Yeah, because that really sounds like a full-time job. And notice the, the heavy political agenda in the history mm -hmm. of the organization. And, you know, students have to balance this very delicate ecosystem of maintaining independence, cooperating with government, but also appreciating that advocacy involves politics. And while you don't want to be bipartisan, you want to be neutral, you want to be fair, you want to be student focused, you have to be involved in the politics to shift change. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So kudos to the organization for being able to do that. Being able to enjoy a hundred years of existence says you've been doing it right. So <laughs> thank you kindly. Or other younger organizations can learn. And um, that's what the CSA is about. Networking student groups so that we can learn best practices. And I really would encourage the listeners, especially senior executive members from other student-led bodies, to visit the social pages of the New Zealand Union of Students Association so that you can learn, draw inspiration and study their model. My, my next question, Ellen, uh, pardon me, my sheet. Yes. <laughs> what are some of the advocacy priorities? If you could identify maybe three or four core advocacy priorities during your tenure, as president? Hmm. 
There have been a number of things, Benjamin. I mean, we've come out of the pandemic environment like all the nations of the world have, and we're in an education crisis at a national level alongside the global level. So everyone's in the similar boat where we're looking at education, education financing and saying something is not right in the way that our governments are funding education across the world. Um, the fact that we have kids who are out of school is not appropriate. Um, but the biggest one that we've had this year is massive, massive deficits in the tertiary sector for our um, institutes of technology and polytechnics and for our universities, only some universities, not all. And it's resulted in mass staff cuts um, which is having a huge impact on the economy um, and is something that probably will not be resolved for the next five years and has stimulated a lot of protest from staff and students um, who are in precarious situations with the cost of living crisis, um, given that inflation is so high where we are. And I mean, we're considered a developed nation, but we also have some significant issues of poverty internally. Um, and when you consider us as a developed nation, we're not developed in the same way that a place in Europe would be considered developed or the USA would be considered developed. Um, we are obviously, as we'll come up in conversation are still a colony um so that, that changes the way that you view development in, in those spaces so that's been a big area talking to the issues of um these massive cuts that have been happening and, and what we see is the future of education beyond just our, our attempts to reprivatize um our education system which then focuses on the elite and not on those who need it the most which is the masses um then we've got our, obviously our general elections campaigns so we're in an election year um within the next two weeks people are voting for who they want to see for the next prime minister and the next party in power. Um, our elections campaign has focused on three particular areas. That first area is the respect and upholding of Titiriti or Waitangi, which is the treaty that was agreed to between the British Crown um, and Māori, who are the indigenous peoples of this land or known as Tangata Whenua. Um, it is an agreement that has existed for some years, but it has not always been respected by the Crown. And it's certainly not always respected in the context of education and the support of Māori in education. Uh, so that's something that we want to see upholding Māoridom in, in education. Um, another one is our second area of priority is dealing with, as I said, the $16 billion of debt for students. Um, the student loan scheme was introduced in the period of the 1980s, 1990s, um, and it was seen as quite a cumbersome um, approach where it's putting debt on people while they're young and don't actually understand how debt works in a similar way that it's worked in the UK or the USA, um, and then combines with multiple forms of debt so young people can't afford to have a house, to have a family in their later life. So we're asking for student debt to be looked at by the government, either through a universal education income or what's known as a study wage for all, which our student are calling it now, um, being waged to study, um, seeing study as a part of employment and, and a part of um, contributing to society as a whole, whole rather than seeing it as independent and also considering ways that you can wipe student loans because at this point in time student loans are even viewed in the context of criminality if you don't pay them which is a massive massive issue in our country if you go overseas. Um, so there's that and then our last one is student voice and partnership which is embedding students into policy and practice more within our institutions. So that's a little bit of an overview of the advocacy we're doing in those spaces. You know I, I hope that um, the Jamaica Union of Tertiary students will listen to this because they'll see that though we are several miles and hours apart or issues we have similar issues we also have a student loan system where they will pursue you for years even if you're unemployed and you're not able to start paying the loan back <laughs> yes but but two yeah. highlights for me after observing your work through your pages i see that you encourage 
the appreciation of the teaching profession. And though you represent students, it seems you, you acknowledge that students can't be students without teachers. And, and while we advocate for students, we also have to advocate for teachers. In Jamaica, we have a major teacher migration issue. And I believe that the wow. student voice needs to be added. Though the teachers have their own association, students need to make demands of government for our teachers as well. Our student teachers mm. who are in teachers' colleges need representation, mm. but students will be the ones who will feel the most effect, the most detrimental effects of teachers being underpaid, unappreciated, overworked. Mm. So I really commend your organization for addressing that issue. And secondly, is that your advocacy deals with issues of post-student life. Student advocacy isn't just about what happens for us in the classroom. We're preparing to be global citizens. We're preparing to be yes. citizens of our country. So we can't mm -hmm. effectively use what we went to school to do if we can't find employment. So student leaders mm -hmm. must talk about employment issues. You mentioned housing, must talk about housing issues. Must talk mm -hmm. about gender-based violence. Because mm -hmm. we are the ones who will go into society when we leave the classroom to deal with this. So I am again, you maybe hear me say this a couple more times in our talk. Everybody look at this organization and take several pages. This takes us to the meat of our discussion. The topic today is decolonization of education <laughs> as part of the mm -hmm. truth and reconciliation in the Commonwealth. I'm going to give some context to the Commonwealth, what it's about, and the relationship that the CSA has with the Commonwealth. And Ellen is going to take us through some questions that I have prepared for her. So sit tight. First question that I'll be answering is, <laughs> what is the Commonwealth? The Commonwealth is a voluntary association of 56 independent and equal countries in Asia, Africa, the Americas, Europe, and the Pacific. It is home to 2.5 billion people and includes both advanced and advanced economies and developing countries. 33 of our member states are small states, including many island nations like mine. The Commonwealth its roots go back to the British Empire. The last four countries to join the Commonwealth, Rwanda, Mozambique, Gabon, and Togo, however, have no historical ties to the British Empire. So as is commonly misunderstood, you don't have to be a former British colony to be a part of the Commonwealth. Any state, as long as they subscribe to the values of the Commonwealth Charter, which include democracy, good governance, peace, they can be admitted into the Commonwealth. Now, the Commonwealth is, if I could say run, and I say that loosely, the administrative and program agenda is managed by the Commonwealth Secretariat, which was created in 1965, 
as a central intergovernmental organization to manage the Commonwealth's work. The thematic areas of development work are democracy, government and law, environment and climate change, small states, society and young people, trade and economy. So the Commonwealth Secretariat does a lot. And I can speak from someone who has personally gone to their offices multiple times. They've literally organized presentations so that we who form youth in the youth networks can see what they do beyond the youth network. They, they literally help member states in development. It's absolutely amazing what they do from the largest state, which is India, of 1.4 billion people to the smallest member state of Nuaru in the Pacific of 10,000 people. What is the Commonwealth Youth Program? The Commonwealth Secretariat's youth development work is delivered through the Commonwealth Youth Program, which has been supporting member states for 50 years. In fact, the heads of government declared 2023 to be the year of the youth as it marked 50 years of the Commonwealth Youth Program. And it's actually going to continue into 2024, leading up to the next heads of government meeting, which will be held in summer. So yay, Pacific. Now, the youth networks form, well, I could call it one of the sections of the Commonwealth Youth Program. The youth networks provide, <coughs> this, the Secretariat provides technical assistance and support for national, regional, and global networks, such as the Commonwealth Youth Council, the Commonwealth Students Association, the Commonwealth Youth Sport for Development and Peace Network, the Commonwealth Youth Climate Change Network, the Commonwealth Youth Peace Ambassadors Network, the Commonwealth Youth Health Network, the Commonwealth Youth Human Rights and Democracy Network, the Commonwealth Youth Gender Equality Network, among others. And I went through these names because I want to highlight that these are youth-led organizations. We are given autonomy and it's not artificial autonomy, though it's a work in progress. I believe I experienced as chair of the organization along with my team members, true independence. We literally met after our tenure to decide how we would chart or agenda and focus for our tenure, which goes up to 2025. That counters any view that we're an instrument of an institution. We were formed out of a Commonwealth meeting in 2012, which I'll get to. We are supported by the Commonwealth Secretariat, but the Commonwealth Students Association is led by ordinary young people. You know, Ellen, I find that there is a great misconception of what my job is. I'm not a friend of the royal family. I can't give anyone a British passport. I can't give anyone a scholarship. I am an ordinary student leader who applied and was elected. I have a regular job. This is not, I don't get paid for the chairperson role. 
I have a day job and, you know, other things in my life. I feel almost offended when there's, there's this view that I'm a puppet because it's Commonwealth. Whenever I share with certain colleagues, immediately they question my value system where it concerns my African heritage. The colonial past, Am I, is my Commonwealth involvement an indication that I stand in allegiance to the crown? Those are some of the issues that I want us to, to tap into as we look into decolonization of education as part of the truth and reconciliation agenda in the Commonwealth. Coming down, what is the relationship between the CSC and the British monarch? I've had this question directed to me spot on, and I want to address it in the most uncertain terms. King Charles is the head of the Commonwealth. However, the head of the Commonwealth does not have to be the head of the British royal family. It can be someone else. The Commonwealth Students Association is an independent body that was established in 2012 upon the agreement of ministers of education and student leaders that a student-led organization was necessary to further the education agenda within the Voluntary Association of Nations. The Commonwealth Secretariat does not tell us what to do. They do not unduly influence our agenda. The Student Congress is the supreme body of the CSA, and the, supreme, the Congress is made up of its members. The national student bodies and student organizations that are given membership in the CSA, not the Crown, nor the Commonwealth Secretariat. The CSA is led by elected youth and student leaders. So now that we have set the context of what the Commonwealth is, what the Commonwealth Student Association, Students Association is about and what its relationship is, I want us to talk about the key advocacy priority for the CSA's tenure this year, which is the decolonization of education. And I'm going to ask you, Ellen, what is the decolonization of education? Well, thank you for that presentation on the Commonwealth, Benjamin. It was really interesting to hear about your structures and certainly the Year of Youth is a very exciting initiative that we are seeing going on. I did have the privilege of attending Parliament um, on the day where we uh, engage and talk about um, the Commonwealth's work across the world and they introduced the Year of Youth to us then and it was really cool to see a lot of young people um, from all across different regions who were in Aotearoa, New Zealand, able to talk about what they had as a vision, very much like CSA for the future of youth. So it's fantastic to hear about what you're doing in that space and your plans for the next couple of years. Um, before I get to what the decolonization of education is and decolonizing education, which is a very big topic in and of itself, I always think it's important um, to start on what colonization is as a whole, but also like we as individuals, where we sit within that in our own history. Um, I know for many, it's a very difficult topic to talk about um, because it includes a very 
candid and in some cases quite traumatic conversations on things such as economic, social and cultural and religious uh, oppression and exploitation, in some cases um, genocide and, and slavery. And, and for many, including in my own heritage, does include a sense of deep grievous loss. Um, so I first need to acknowledge my position in this conversation, which I think is quite important and really does shape the way that I as an individual perceive the conversation of decolonizing education. Um, so I'm from an ethnic community which is regarded as one of the first that was colonized by the British Empire, uh, which goes back hundreds of years in our heritage and still to this day are not considered an independent people uh, and remain the only ethnicity currently targeted in UK terror law. Um, and saying that also, um, while I'm speaking about decolonizing of education, I'm not in the country of my original origin. The country I'm currently in, Aotearoa, New Zealand, I'm a child of diaspora, um, like many others who came over during colonization of this country. So I think it's important to realize that when I speak about the colonization of the Pacific, I do not speak as someone who is a person of the land or of the ocean here. I speak as someone who is born witness to the colonization in this space and who has also been colonized from my own land, which was elsewhere, um, in which case I see my idea Entity very similar to the way that Slazov Zizek, the philosopher, talks about the element of um, the reason why Malcolm X called himself Malcolm X, and where he says the X stands for this has blotted out my lineage of past because I no longer have a connection to the land of my heritage, and I must deal with the grief of that as diaspora uh, due to the oppression that I encountered in the first place. So I have lost my uh, original ancestral land, and I am now recognizing that I must make a new trajectory for myself. So it's a really big conversation and I view myself very similarly as a post-colonial theorist, which is what I am to what Albert Memmi, who is a Tunisian, um, who wrote a really good book called The Colonizer and the Colonized, if you have not read it, please do, who calls himself, I'm a sort of half-breed of colonization, understanding everyone because I belonged completely to no one. Um, so what is colonization? Well, I could give you an economic answer for that. Um, because technically colonization is typically associated with um, the uh, resourcing and the value of resources in the space of a particular land. Yeah. Uh, there's something I want to understand here and unpack, especially for the listeners who like me, it may have, it, it, you may have not digested it properly. So you, sure. your, how you understand your identity and the, the, I'm trying to be careful here. How you ex how your people experience colonialism is that you don't see yourself as part of the people who are indigenous there. Is that what I am to understand? I am not indigenous to this land, but I have indigenity to another land, which is not this land. So I just, I, I referenced that from the beginning because um, there are indigenous people in this land and it's important that I recognize that their voice in this space is a very particular voice in the same way that my voice in the land of my ancestors is very key as well. Ancestral land is a very, very big thing in, in Aotearoa, New Zealand. It connects to your whakapapa, your lineage, your history, your heritage. Um, and it's part of the grief of the spiritual loss of your connection. So that is why I say that at the beginning of this conversation, when I speak about colonization, I'm partly speaking from my own experience of a land that's not just Aotearoa, New Zealand, um, because that is first and foremost, the conversation of the people of this land. Does that make sense? That, that is, that makes sense. And to me, it's very deep. Yeah, that's not a surface point at all. That's a heavy point. And thank you for clarifying it for me and the listeners. But please go ahead. I'm, I'm eating this all up. <laughs> 
<laughs> my pleasure. Um, so yeah, we could talk about colonization from a sort of economic perspective, uh, which is to do with the movement of resources, because when we think about the period of colonization, it was very much attached to um, the industrial revolution period where um, leading slightly above that and before that with the expansion of the British Empire as a whole. Um, so there's always a financial element to colonization, but I'm an absurdist, which is a philosophical position, um, who studies, um, unfortunately, the area that I study is the use of violence in, in nation states. Um, so I'm going to give you the answer that on one of my favorite um, existentialist Sartre gave, that is, colonialism denies human rights to human beings whom it has subdued by violence and keeps them by force in a state of misery and ignorance that Marx would rightly call a subhuman condition. So really our underlying element that I see in the, the narrative of colonization is are we giving dignity to people? Are we giving dignity to human lives? So when we come to the conversation on the decolonization of education, what are we really asking? More often than not, I actually think what we're asking is, is education giving dignity to all peoples of all ethnic, religious, socioeconomic backgrounds? If the answer to that is, is no, then that is the conversation that we need to have. What does that look like? I follow a lot of the work of the decolonization theorist, the Brazilian um, who's really well known, and I've actually got his book over here for anyone who wants to read a really, really good book. Um, you probably can't read it because it will be a mirrored version, but The Pedagogy of the Oppressed, um, it's really, really good, still seen as one of the key critical education theorist texts, um, which talks about addressing the project of humanization in education is actually the key purpose of education by directly confronting anything that is dehumanizing. Um, what do we mean by that? We mean uh, the sort of I like how Sartre calls it, the engine of colonialism works in a, basically a circle. It's impossible to distinguish between the purpose of colonization and its outcome because there's like this sustained oppression where the colonizer becomes dependent on the colonized. There's like this interrelationship of the sustainable violence of um, in order to continue getting the resources, there needs to be continued exploitation. So there needs to be continual dehumanization. And that is for the existence of some who are succeeding in receiving these resources to succeed over those who don't have those resources. But that relationship must be sustained in order for it to be meaningful. So Frede says, if we want to decolonize education, we must look at the dehumanization, which not only marks those whose humanity have been stolen, but also who has stolen it, how it was stolen, and the distortion of the vocation of becoming fully human. Now, I think that's really interesting. He says the vocation of becoming fully human, because to him, education is not, as we were talking before, you said, it's the whole person, it's the whole citizen. It is not just, I go in, I learn my reading, writing, and arithmetic. I'm actually learning to be a global citizen. I'm learning to be a citizen of my nation. I'm learning to be part of my community in the context of Aotearoa New Zealand. I'm learning to be part of my whānau, or my hapu, or my iwi, which is my family, or my wider extended family, or my tribe so it's like I'm learning with education how to be a person not simply to retain skills retaining skills as part of being a person so in that context Prada is saying uh, the relationship in education where colonization occurs is when we put a sort of um, sense of imposition in education onto those who have a different style of knowledge um, empire is often attached to whose knowledge Whose type of knowledge are we dealing with? There was a really interesting conversation in 2021 in Aotearoa, New Zealand, about Mataronga Māori, which is a particular form of educational engagement for Māori, which is not the same as traditional Western perspectives, as it includes spiritualism and science. And there were a bunch of scientists who came out and said, 
Motoronga Māori is a fake science. It's not a true science and it offended a whole lot of people uh, because to the people who spirituality is connected with science, it is a true science. And to those who are from a Western perspective, they've been taught, well, if I can't physically view it, then it's not part of traditional science. So it's technically a cultural misinterpretation between two different groups who, you know, obviously has control of the school-based systems because our school systems are westernised, had more of a say in that than those who were, those who had been oppressed, which is the indigenous peoples. And we can already see what that imbalance creates. Um, so Freire says that what we actually need to do when we're thinking practically about decolonization in the classroom or in the lecture hall or wherever you are, is consider that even the way you structure education is going to impact whether or not oppression or dehumanization can happen. And that's not just in the context of colonization, it's in the context of any type of oppression. He talks about how narration of the teacher as the narrator of what's happening into in the class or in the lecture hall leads the students to like mechanically memorize often um, any type of narrated content, which is the knowledge of the teacher. And he says this turns students just into containers, uh, into receptacles to be filled by the teacher's knowledge. Um, and he says the more completely the teacher fills these receptacles, the better teacher they are considered to be. The more meekly the receptacles, the students accept themselves being filled by the knowledge of the teacher, the better students they are considered to be. But he calls this the banking model of education, which is literally treating people like they are economic subjects where we're just basically preparing them for the market. Not to say that skills like that and knowledge from the teacher is not important. It is important. You still need to have social cultural values that you can understand and engage with even if you are in a culture that is not necessarily your own um, but this type of model then uh, isn't necessarily giving agency to people and I think that's the element of the project of humanization so that is talking about if you want to decolonize education you need to give agency to the full person their cultural social uh, economic religious all of those experiences as a whole person whether or not you agree with them it's about freedom I think a project of freedom so that was a very long answer but um, that's our orientation towards the decolonization of education. One of the words that stood out to me very profoundly is the role of decolonization of education in, in humanizing our identities. Mm. Yes. It, it has to do with how I look, the texture of my hair. Mm -hmm. Treated in the classroom as a result of those qualities. It has to do with how I speak, my accent the language, it has to do with my spirituality as well. Mm. I, 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 I wish I could take a pause to just digest several of the things that you've said, because if I'm being honest, well, I, I, I'll, I'll be very honest about this. There are several things you said a while ago I didn't know. So this is also a learning opportunity for me. Yes, and I'm sure several of the persons who are listening to this platform who may be interested in the thematic area, but just they're not aware, you know? So thank you. Now, my, my next question is, how has colonialism shaped the education system in New Zealand? Mm. 
Mm. It's a really interesting conversation. Um, I mean, Aotearoa New Zealand was um, one of the last nations to be colonised as well. But when we think about it, I, I just take a step back there and say, colonisation is actually the school system. I don't think people realise that when they talk about schools. Um, we're actually talking about the urbanisation model, which was largely promoted by the Christian churches, um, particularly in, in Europe. Um, they were bought across during the period of the Industrial Revolution. So we get a lot of like moral outrage these days across the world about children not being in schools, but schools are actually a relatively new phenomena and they do have their background in specifically attempting to give low socioeconomic families a future outside of the feudal system in Europe. And that's why they were created to be this model. Um, and in the context of Aotearoa New Zealand, they were no different. So schools were largely the result of Anglican ministers who wanted to provide um, like English speaking opportunity to be able to read the Bible to particularly Māori um, but also to whalers and sealers who were largely the people who were in the country at the time from Europe who were typically low socioeconomic and couldn't read um, and families coming across from Europe when the, the boat people started to come across um, and this was really the result like create a sort of ad hoc educational system that later down the track was employed by the British Crown uh, for the purpose of colonial exploitation and the westernising of Māori and Pacific peoples it, it wasn't initially um, but it was later down the track when they saw that there was value in using the education system to gain more access to the reclaiming or well, not really reclaiming in this space but the actual claiming of land um, from the British Crown perspective of the interpretation of Te Tiriti or Waitangi which was the British Crown's interpretation and not Māori's interpretation um, which then resulted in the refusal to allow Māori to use the use of te reo, um, their language and the punishment of that in schools and the setting up of certain social values in alignment with Europe <clears throat> They were largely out of sorts with agrarian peoples and still today remain relatively out of sorts and still favoured a wealthy elite over poorer communities, although you don't actually hear that talked about often in Aotearoa New Zealand because we have this theme of not talking about wealth disparities, even though there's like a natural suspicion towards that. Unis were set up in the 1800s, but largely appealed to the wealthier families as a result of it um, and were only opened up to more attendees in like round about World War One and World War Two. Um, Māori did very well in universities, which really surprised the British. The Anglican ministers had wanted Māori to basically have equal access to universities from the beginning of their being set up. Uh, so a number of very bright young male leaders were accepted into universities and started basically to advocate for te reo Māori and the decolonisation of universities in the late 1800s, which is very early in terms of when our universities were set up. A well-known academic whose name is Ranganui Walker, um, who is Māori, stated that the appearance of Māori graduates so early in the colonial encounter constituted a challenge to the nexus of Eurocentric power. And it was absolutely true. So the Young Māori Party, which formed, um, uh, was some Māori thinkers within university systems who were like advocating for having their own language, having their own journals, having their own newspapers, and really getting Māoridom to be respected in the context of the university. But these men were then targeted in World War II by the British government, who placed them, like many other ethnic communities, on the front lines during World War II to ensure that their numbers and their leadership diminished for generations, which we only saw with the revitalization of Te Reo Māori after it almost came like underwent an entire language death in the 1970s when the schools movement happened so it took quite a few generations to get that back up and running after World War II. Currently we also have significant issues even with the advent of Indigenous schools and the Indigenous universities which are known as Wānanga um, and respect for Te Tiriti or Waitangi and policies only 5% of university staff currently are Māori less than 1-2% to of university staff are Pacifica there are an increased number of students in higher education from these communities 
but it's not necessarily reflective of indigenous values, as was exampled in, in the one that I talked about, about the context of science and Mataranga Māori, which really did cause a lot of sadness among the people. Um, so there are all of these different kind of contexts when you think about the decolonization and the history of education in Aotearoa and New Zealand, but there is a very clear um, advantage to some and disadvantage to others in this space, which is unfortunate um, and is something that this nation needs to continue working towards to rectify it, um, and that the British Crown also does to a certain extent need to be upfront and being answerable for. So there's a complex history and, and now we're dealing with super diversity amongst our populace because of the incoming flux of people from Asia um, and uh, a wider number of people coming from overseas uh, through immigration. So um, what we'll see in the future will maybe not also reflect the biculturalism that we're seeing currently in the sort of history of the colonization of education in Aotearoa. I don't think there's anyone who would disagree that the system of enrolling students in an institution where they are part of a class, where they can be taught and learning is facilitated. I don't think anyone would, 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 would disagree when I say that's a good thing. I think that's one of the advantages that you hinted at. Yes? But, but prior to this yeah, conversation, I, mean I never saw it as something being inherited. Never looked at it that in several um, pre-colonial civilizations, or before, I, I should say, before they were colonized, they didn't have a formal education system. I, I wouldn't say all, because history records that there were kingdoms in Africa where there were universities. Whether or not it looked like a European university, that's different, but again, not that we are, I, I think it adds some balance to the conversation. Mm -hmm. Because whenever I think of decolonizing, I'm, it feels like everything is bad that we've inherited. But I mean, to, to formalize a system where students, though perhaps at the time, not perhaps, at the time it was heavily discriminatory, who could get access to the classroom? The fact is it brought together a system where there was a classroom. I know we have the, 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 the opportunity to shape those classrooms and educational institutions into something that reflects our national identity. Yeah, I love that additional perspective. Mm, absolutely. Yeah, I, I want to add to that. I, I think what we got to remember when we deal with the concept of empire, empire always brings positives and negatives simultaneously. And that's because that's what it is. You know, it has benefits and advantages in terms of things like trade, um, new ideas, the sharing of interculturalism in some contexts. And then it also does bring some people will be focused on more than others, um, often in a context of exploitation. Um, there will be certain types of values that are prioritized over other values. Um, so, I mean, when we think about the context of the schooling system, um, the current schooling system does exist because of a large plague, the, the models of colonization and was set up originally in, in the UK, in particular in Britain, um, for the purposes of serving the poor. So like there were really 
good intentions originally in, in the model of what was included and then it was used as that model to shape systems ongoingly as it became more engaged and supported by the British government at the time. Um, so I, there, there's like multiple things to think about there and also as you said the university system is not singularly European. Um, there, there were universities in Africa and the Middle East in particular, I think one of the market differences, so when we think about their structures, is they worked more like apprenticeship models. Um, they worked in smaller groups and it was, you went to find a particular, um, I won't say academic, but a particular leader in the field you wanted to work in, particularly areas like medicine and health and um, things like that. So you were almost apprenticed on and you would spend years working with these individuals to become a master craftsman. Um, and I think that's what the intention of these educational institutions were meant to represent. But what we've seen is the sort of resourcing based model in these spaces then ends up resourcing education and turning it into a product, um, which is not what those original groups, when you look at the Africa and the Middle East, were attempting to do. They were attempting to show, as I said, master craftsmanship. Um, so we've kind of moved away from the cultural element of master craftsmanship to a reproductive model, which is largely due to colonization. So there's like positives and negatives in these spaces. Yeah. And I think it's important to remember that when we talk about um, things like decolonizing education. This is this is so enlightening. I, th I feel like I'm in a lecture. And I'm absolutely... <laughs> oh, yeah. I don't no, want to I'm... just be talking at you. I'm so enjoying this. Yes. So how do remnants of colonialism affect educational outcomes in the institutions in New Zealand? Yeah, well, one of the big conversations that I'm having currently is around Matsuranga Māori. So I work with... Um, uh, one of the genomics bodies for the science community in Aotearoa, and they're connected with the Indigenous Genomics Institute, um, who are specifically to do with looking at how can we restructure secondary school education um, at this point in time to include Māori values so that we can combine elements of Western science with Māori values and Māori spiritualism to do with whakapapa, which is history and heritage, which ties into the Māori version of science. Um, so that is one of the examples of like, we need to be proactive as a nation ourselves, but also um, in the way that we think about education in general, that our learning outcomes learning outcomes are a self-fulfilling prophecy when we have already determined what people will get out of them when they first enter. So what happens to, like traditionally is you'll see with certain cultural groups within Aotearoa New Zealand is they'll go to a school counsellor. The school counsellor will say the traditional thing to a student, which is, oh, you're from this community. You would be better at science. You would be better at, um, you know, sports. You would be better at healthcare. And they get funneled into a particular type of outcome of role, which is, again, a form of, unfortunately, discriminatory practice, which people don't always understand is discriminatory because it can be naturalized even to the more oppressed communities where they're like oh well everyone in our community does that so therefore like all my whanau did that so therefore I'm going to do that too and and it's like mm, you know there is flexibility in that if you want to do that there's no shame in doing that but if we want to challenge that there's also no shame in challenging that as to the parameters of what you can do for your cultural community or spiritual or religious group um, so I think one of the things we need to realize is that we determine the learning outcomes when we set government policy and the government policy currently has um, Titeriti uh, or Waitangi is kind of like a side note and not really embedded in terms of like I've been dealing with 
conversations on what is the quality of education when we're including Indigenous values recently, um, of which I'm not the person to say that, that is largely the iwi to recommend on that, the tribes. Um, but one of the things that we do notice then is our diversity actually requires us to accommodate diversity in the classroom and in the lecture hall in such a way that we're not already determining what quality is before the student has even begun the course, um, which is like, with the Indigenous Genomics Institute, they're talking about the element of if we then take, for example, the use of a scenario such as something that's connected to the marae, which is the meeting house for Māori, or the connection of kai, which is the like when I collect food for my family, and use that as an example of how to use science as opposed to um, person X decides to build a bridge, and this is the like um, you know, the equation that you need to use and the physics that you need to use to do that. If I use the physics model, but in the Indigenous context and give it Indigenous values, will I see more success of students from that community going into science and science careers in the future and transforming science for the better so we have more of a blended version of values that can uphold all of our cultural perspectives? And I think the answer to that is yes, but I think a lot of people get a bit nervous about what does that mean in the context of the classroom. I remember talking to an academic about um, the fact of embedding academic freedom into the context of the class actually includes giving agency to students to determine how they wish to think and feel and engage in their assessment. And his response to me is, if I do that, I'm going to have to deal with so many different personalities. I'm going to have to deal with so many different contexts. I said, yes, because they're people. And that is where decolonization occurs when you're not just determining the learning outcomes. You see, if I say, for example, I want a certain outcome on academic freedom, I need you to do this assessment on academic freedom, will you tell me what it means? I'm not actually giving you freedom. I'm not giving you academic freedom. I'm asking you to report back to me on what I think academic freedom is in that space, um, which is my knowledge, which is again, going back to Friday's model. Does that mean that we don't have knowledges that I need to know? No, I mean, in first year, you probably will as a university student use that model because we need to test, do you know this concept? But as you're moving towards the latter part, we need to go back to those apprenticeship models and um, with the learning outcomes that we saw in Africa, in the Middle East, which is I now respect that you are becoming increasingly aware of your humanized in this space and I want you to contribute to the classroom which is the whole point of scholarship in higher education you are meant to contribute as someone of the academic community um, so the remnants of colonialism is actually the remnants of just oppression in general in the context of the classroom um, but it does have very real outcomes from a sort of equity perspective in the sense that some students in my country are not allowed to use their own language in order to be able to write for their course even though their language is the official language of this nation te reo Māori um, sometimes they're told you know we don't have the resources for you to study in this particular area in connection with your community. These are not good enough excuses because they determine the types of outcome of research, types of outcome of um, what types of careers we will have in the future. So it creates a whole ecosystem of oppression um, which people don't really understand. It can even be by default. It doesn't necessarily have to be done um, with the, oh, I'm going to oppress these peoples. It can also just be done because the ignorance is they're not providing a particular type of platform and thinking about how we are basically constructing students' identity in the future, both economically and socially. So yeah, a number of different ways. A follow. I I'm going to be sort of a devil's advocate here with this follow-up question. Governments have to manage the demand of the labor market. Mm. They have to manage abating unemployment. Mm. If we have a surge of students interested in studying political science, I'm not an advocate of barring them, 
But where are they going to get work? <laughs> oh, we're not preparing people just for work. Practically speaking, my inspiration can't put food in my belly. My mm -hmm. love for learning and knowledge and, you know, sociology. I love sociology. I did it in high school. I love it. But unless you're going to be an academic or find some job within the area, unless you're going to, for, there, there are certain jobs where, unless you're going to go to a certain level, we have several students graduating with international relations degrees, yet the diplomatic mm. community only has so many jobs. How do governments balance yes. this practical need to fill the labor market with employable people and not barring someone from exploring their interests just mm -hmm. because there are labor interests and labor needs to be filled? Yeah, it's a very good question and it's a tension that I understand has to constantly be reassessed because it's not as simple as I give agency and then I put a person in a position where they think they have access to everything and then I've actually given them a false reality. It goes back to Flair's concept on the humanizing of education. What he means in the humanizing of education is not simply that you allow a person to explore themselves in the context of the classroom and the lecture hall. He means that then you also bring in the social issues. Do we have issues of low employment in say healthcare? In, in education? Do we have enough teachers? Do we have, you know, enough people to be able to support in, um, you know, infrastructure, basic infrastructure like transportation and housing? So once those persons have been able to explore elements of their identity, introducing those social issues to them that may have been inherited from a colonial structure, that may still exist within a colonial structure, but what you're doing is that you're giving that to them in the context where they can be aware of where they've journeyed from and then able to respond to what they are seeing in that environment and, and then they are contributing to society um, actively in the classroom. So the classroom then gets used much in the concept of Bell Hooks does a really good version of this where she talks about a pedagogy of hope, which is a response to Freire's pedagogy of the oppressed. Whereas the hope then becomes that we put the social issues into the classroom so that the student is able to take their whole identity and go, what solutions can I have that are going to help everyone in this context, and um, which will then open them up to an awareness of the socioeconomic decisions being made by the government in the first place. One of the things that we see happen in my nation is they've oppressed civics education from being in our classrooms. In most classrooms, that is the case across the world. Um, so students aren't learning about what does voting mean? Why do I have this governmental structure? Why does this policy happen? What impact does it have on me? I mean, I think the year of youth is attempting to kind of try and resuscitate that. I know the Transforming Education Summit was at the UN recently. Um, but what we're doing then is bringing back the social context of where we're at currently, but we're allowing students to be full humans in that conversation of contributing to it, even with their limited understanding, maybe in life experience, um, but not shaming them for a limited experience in, in their life, but actually asking them to be considerate of the economic and social factors, which can include employment in that, uh, which means they'll be more useful citizens because they'll be making decisions more aware of the employment context further down the track. So that is Friday's model um, as to why it's actually more advantageous to do that than less. I think that's a beautiful answer because students are also practical too. Mm. If they are exposed and given an opportunity to, to respond to the, 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 the reality, I'm sure that we, mm. we can be reasonable. <laughs> My next question. 
how do youth in your organization and youth in New Zealand generally view the Commonwealth? And I'd like to know what your view of the Commonwealth of Nations is. Mm, so um, I can start off by saying Aotearoa New Zealand is a member of uh, the Commonwealth of Nations, um, as is a number of Pacific representative groups. I think one of the things that I need to stress, and I think the thing that is misunderstood even within the Commonwealth as a whole, is there is a very distinct difference between those who are post-colony and those who are still a colony. And I think more often than not, when we talk about the Commonwealth, we think of post-colony. Um, and they're quite young post-colonies, I'll, I'll add that part, because they're, they're not all post-colonies. Um, but and when you think about Australia and New Zealand in particular, we're not post-colony, we are still colonies. We are still under the British Empire. Um, our governments still exist under the governor generals that sit within that space. So we're still only allowed to have a government because of the existence of um, the UK as a whole. And the same for my heritage. So my heritage, um, my ethnic community only exists as a nation as well, because that sits under the British government, um, UK government, giving us the endorsement to exist in, in that model, which is not the same thing as national independence. And I think it's really important that that creates a difference in how you approach dealing with colonization when you're you're still a colony, um, as opposed to those who do have independence. Um, so for us, it then begs the question of how do we view ourselves in comparison with those who are post-colonies? Because during the period where a lot of co um, colonized nations were pushing for independence in the 1980s and 90s, we had really close relationships with them, particularly in places like Africa, Latin America, the Caribbean, so on so forth. So Aotearoa New Zealand was really supportive of pushing for independence in those spaces. But they then were gaining their independence. Even the Pacific Islands have gained their independence within those spaces. Australia and New Zealand have not. And there are a lot of reasons for that. And, and one of those core uh, reasons for that currently is that we are super diverse now, as I said. Um, unlike many of the now independent nations, they don't have the level of super diversity that we have because of the colonization process. Australia, Canada, New Zealand, very similar in that model of super diversity, meaning we now struggle to define what our collective identity is to even be able to have the conversation of what independence would look like as a whole, because it would change the model that we have in the bilateral treaty arrangement between the indigenous peoples and the New Zealand government. Um, but also in addition to that, you know, we've got so many cultures um, that it, it's, it's quite astounding to try and work out what does that look like? And I'm sure the USA originally was in that model of um, thinking, well, I mean, increasingly is as well. Um, when you think about, they talked about independence, but that was from the British government and now they have super diversity and it's like, is it serving everyone? I don't know. Um, so our collective identity also has to recognize that colonization resulted um, in this sort of atomization, particularly also of indigenous identity, which means while tribalism still exists, there can be um, a lot of distinction between tribal groups as to what they want in that space and what they think is valuable. Um, and also even within diaspora as well. Um, so the consequence is that this colonized society um, has had mass individualization to a certain extent which means that um, our system has continued to be quite neoliberal, um, which is a continuation, unfortunately, of colonial values in many contexts and sometimes does allow for a, a racist and um, socioeconomic exploitation of certain community groups in certain situations. So you've got to remember that Australia and New Zealand are still dealing with that, um, whereas a lot of the nations in, in the Commonwealth are not. Um, and that does change the way that we view the Commonwealth in terms of our relationship with it. Um, although the alliance 
uh, is something that we still value with all the Commonwealth nations. And we will always say that we, we very much value um, those alliances. We're just in a very different context to some of the other nations in that space. Um, and I think it also comes back to the element when we talk about the Commonwealth, and this is something that I know resonates for me and I know resonates for the students in, in my association. Um, we recognize it as part of our heritage very much because that is something that is part of our heritage. Um, and we also recognize, yeah, yeah, our collective heritage, um, and also um, recognize that there are huge advantages with the stuff that the Commonwealth Secretariat are doing at the moment in terms of outreach to the arts and um, design and creating opportunities and platforms for um, intergenerational engagement. And that's fantastic to see, and I'm so excited for that. But I think it's really important to consider um, particularly the fact that the um, British Ground are currently involved in the direction of the Commonwealth of Nations. What Mimi says about the colonizer, where he says, once he has discovered the import of colonization and is conscious of his own position, that the colonized and their necessary relationship are connected with him, is he going to accept them? Will he agree to be a privileged man and to underscore the distress of the colonized? Will he be a usurper and affirm the oppression or injustice to the true inhabitant of the colony? Will he accept being a colonizer under the growing habit of privilege and illegitimacy under the constant gaze of the usurped? Will he adjust his position and his inevitable self-censure? Which is actually more of a question about do those who have been in a position of power recognize that even when we change that relationship, even when we give independence, we are still in an in a, um, imbalanced relationship because of history. Um, and the first part that starts in the reconciliation of that is the acknowledgement of that. And I think that's probably something I haven't seen the Commonwealth of Nations do yet. Um, there's been a lot of like focus on creating a collective identity, creating a positive environment, but the first part of any process of reconciliation is grieving. It is. It's what happened in South Africa with the, the elements of apartheid. It's something that needs to happen in Aotearoa, New Zealand. It's happened to a certain extent um, with the advent of the um, Waitangi Tribunal and um, with the returning of land to those to whom it was taken from. Um, but grief is, is a very necessary part of building relationship. And acknowledgement. Um, yeah, yeah, it is a form of acknowledgement and it's not a permanent state of being. It's the same thing that happened in Australia with the native Australians as well. Um, you know, it is that I see your identity, I see the impact I've had on you in that space, and I recognize it. And that recognition between both parties of those who have felt impacted and those who have caused the impact is actually the like, creation of an opportunity for trust. Um, and I think that's probably the part where um, Aotearoa New Zealand has not felt like there has been a full extension of that conversation within the nation and as much as outside of the nation with the British Crown or the UK government. Um, so yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting conversation to have. It doesn't mean we're opposed to the Commonwealth. It just means that there is a, an acknowledgement of a history and a past that probably needs to come first. Oh dear. I think we may have potentially lost Benjamin. In which case, we will just temporarily wait until he comes back. <laughs> He's been having some data issues. And Benjamin is back. <laughs> back. And we were still like, I don't know what happened yes. to my internet. But we're saying that it started grieving her that I also wanted to insert it has to include acknowledgement. Yes, very true. Very true. Yeah, and not just an acknowledgement of resources, because I think a lot of people think 
um, you know, that there is a financial component that will be able to, if I give you money, then it, I mean, money is a part of it because, you know, resources were included in colonization, as I said earlier, it always includes resources. Um, but it's like in the sense of, for example, whakapapa for Māori, it's, it's a deeply, deeply spiritual ancestral experience so like the loss of land is a loss of an ancestor the loss of a blood lineage it's not as simple as the loss of some physical asset um so it's also being respectful to another person's perception and view and then within that space yes yes my next question how can students lead in the efforts towards truth and reconciliation I think students always come with a an open-mindedness. Um, you know, there's that youthful enthusiasm that is really important. They bring the next generation. They don't always, they hold the trauma of previous generations through blood lineage, but they don't necessarily have the same negativity of believing that the oppression will continue to exist or that relationships that have been broken or mismanaged in the past will continue to be in that space. Um, they are inherently um, hopeful. And that is something that I think we should celebrate with young people. You know, there's this tendency when we are young um, that people talk down to us because they're like, oh, you don't understand. You haven't seen what I've seen. And that's true. Um, you know, we respect our elders within that space. But I think it's really important to understand um, that this sits in the context of young people are able then to contribute to the future because they are the future generations, they're the future politicians, they're future nurses, doctors, teachers, you know, within that space. And they carry within them the hope for a future that is actually cohesive. I've never met a young person who has not had a hope that there could be some type of collective um, environment there, inherently collective people um, that would be able to work for everyone. So I think in that context, it's about taking a look um, at how students can engage in the classroom, like I was saying, in, in a context where um, they are able to have agency, student agency, academic freedom, um, and actually contribute to their structures, like initiatives like CSA, like initiatives like National Unions of Students, um, and, and giving them an identity in that space that is not directed, as you were saying, how CSA is, is not directed necessarily by those who are older than them, but um, focuses on a thing like they say in Aotearoa New Zealand, ako, which is an education where the student and the teacher exchange spaces and places. The student can educate the teacher, the teacher can educate the student, and it's by sharing that we see our communal values together. Um, I also think that students in my region um, have the ability to specifically talk to our social issues. The Pacific is the smallest region of the world. Our students are the least heard when it comes to the global stage, because um, we typically then get absorbed into to Asia as the Asia Pacific, in which case we're barely visible whatsoever, and that comes with additional issues, sometimes neo-colonial issues, unfortunately. Um, so it's like being able to give an identity to particular diverse communities um, and young people within those spaces. Students can champion that, as I was saying earlier in the history of NZUSA, you seen us champion that we continue to champion that in your context in Jamaica they also champion that you know we're able to talk about our social values and aspirations for the land for our planet we've seen this with the the um, global um, protests that were started by Greta Thunberg and and even more so is important when it's connected to ancestral engagement so um, you know students have the ability to collectively have power and I think 
they forget that often because you know they get discouraged in these spaces by governments and political actors but they are often the ones leading reconciliation they were the ones leading the indigenous schools movements um, in the 1970s and 80s which saved te reo maori um, so i think it's important to remember that we when when we are atomized we're not powerful but young people have a natural inclination to work together um, and that can be really the essence of how truth and reconciliation can begin powerful yes my last two questions how do we find the balance between not being anti-europe and pursuing truth and reconciliation i think it's an, an important question because these conversations may tend to stir hate and division mm -hmm. But that's not mm -hmm. the objective of truth and reconciliation. The whole objective, the meaning of the word reconcile is to bring together. So how do we avoid yes. people leaving a conversation like this thinking, well, we're against, we're demanding. Mm -hmm. Help me out. No, it's, a, it's an important conversation. The first thing I start is the caveat where it should go through, uh, go back to um, that we don't start off with self-fulfilling prophecies. Truth and reconciliation are words that are often determined by individuals as to what truth looks like, what reconciliation looks like, and they are culturally determined within those spaces. So it's really important when we come to a space, I love the words third culture creation. It's a really interesting concept in cultural theory, which is when one culture encounters another culture, we create a third culture, which is not necessarily like either of our cultures, but is the way that we translate between both of our cultures so that we can teach each other about our cultures. And I think truth and reconciliation must first start in that space with third culture creation, which is the recognition um, that we need to create almost a lingua franca between us you know, in order to be able to understand the histories of oppression, but also the potential for the future. Um, I, I think it's really important that that is really clearly understood because I've seen it be done in, in ways where we just go, oh, this is truth um, and we need this truth. And that's another form of oppression of knowledge. Um, in terms of the anti-Europe sentiment, I have seen some of that grow up, particularly in the context of the US. There's a lot of stuff on TikTok at the moment, uh, which is really anti-European, um, anti-certain types of communities and sort of blaming. One of the things that I think is really interesting that Freire says is the biggest form of an issue that anyone who's been oppressed through colonization has experienced is an internalization of the oppressor. What does that mean? That means not only do I have my resources stolen from me, but I get Im imposed upon on a knowledge system, which is supposed to be considered superior to my own, which eventually my brain goes, actually, it might be right. Maybe their system is superior to mine. And that is the true oppression that happens, not simply the oppression of the body, not simply the oppression of the land, but the internalization of the value system of oppression which is being put upon you. So Freire says the thing that is actually the most important is that you yourself are not carrying hate within yourself, but carrying awareness that you don't turn into the oppressor having been oppressed because cycles of violence sustain cycles of violence and they do not sustain any type of solution in that space. Violence is not cured by violence, it just sustains it. But in saying that, I will also reiterate that peace always constantly towards violence that is not able to acknowledge what it needs in addressing violence is also an issue because it's still oppressed. Um, so it's really about that element of recognizing the history of Europe as well is feudal systems. I think people often forget that the Europeans model was oppression internally within those nation states and warring clans and tribal groups themselves before the setup of the British Empire. And that 
was really what pushed for a lot of colonization to happen because not only did those who were wealthy uh, who are still answerable with your in, in Europe those wealthy families who were part of the colonial and colonizing system for resources they were oppressing their own people and feudal systems who were the people who then traveled um, to the colonies because they wanted to get away from that oppression so I think it's really important that we recognize that cycles of oppression create oppression and they make us internalize oppression and they encourage hate because as I said it creates atomization it creates individualization and then the element is I just want to get back I want to have mine and I understand that sentiment I know that was in my heritage's sentiment concerning the oppression that we felt you know it's like if only they understood the impact that it had on on my family when we lost people if we if they only understood what it meant for us to feel disconnected um, but the thing is there's a really important recognition that when oppression has happened often the oppressor is also oppressed in the sense that they can't see that their oppression is impacting people who are humans. So that is a type of a blinkered identity. Their identity is not fully formed. Um, and there is, I'm not saying that that means that you then have to feel sorry for anything that has caused oppression within that space, but you need to recognize that the identity of Europe is complex, very, very complex. Histories of cycles of intergenerational um, difficulties, poverty, slavery, even internally within Europe, that has now emerged. Um, to have some financial benefit from colonization. Um, so it's like there's a whole history behind here and it's not as simple as turning to hate. Um, it's as simple as like looking into the history of all people groups within that space and recognizing that empire often, as I said, has positives and negatives and some of its negatives it puts on individuals. Um, and the, the point is to try and find a way to stop that, <laughs> stop that from continuing. Thank you. I think that was a very balanced response. My final, my final question to you, Ellen, as we bring the curtains down on this talk. There is a lot of talk coming from the Caribbean and Africa, but I can definitely say the Caribbean, about reparations, monetary form. Recently at mm. the USDA, the Prime Minister of Barbados, Mia Amor Motley, spoke very openly and clearly about reparative justice. But I believe that there can be non-monetary forms of reparative justice that are also very compelling in mm. repairing the harm. And I believe embracing the decolonization of education agenda is a form of non-monetary reparative justice. Do you agree? And do you think it is an acceptable form? That's my last question to you. Yeah, it's an interesting question because I think my answer would be yes and no, which sounds <laughs> very confusing when I say it that way. Um, but as I said, colonization always has an element which is resource-based. So there's always going to be some type of resource response that needs to happen to that. I mean, when we think about, you know, for example, um, we've been talking recently about the way that African nation states are able to respond to the sustaining of having students in class. In most cases, they're not able to sustain students in class because they don't have an infrastructure in education that can be paid for because their GDP doesn't cover it, which shows a clear disparity in terms of nations that have been colonized as opposed to those who haven't currently within this, these generations. 
um, at being able to resource education in the first place, which is an issue that requires donor nations to be accountable for the fact that their GDP of these nations, often resource-rich nations, nations that have huge amounts of access to minerals and all sorts of things like that, which are the, the whole world is dependent on, um, often have lower levels of GDP because they don't have as much ability to have the income system of the current um, financial and economic system we, we use globally. So they are disadvantaged. So there is going to be a form of reparative um, justice that does include that financial element. And I know the Pacific Islands have been very clear about that in the context of COP for the infrastructure of their islands, because with the massive amount of like oil fracking and things like that that have happened with the ocean levels rising, they are literally losing parts of their islands, um, in which case they are needing resources in order to be able to combat that. So there's like a practical component within the monetary form of a reparative justice, which I think is just natural and in the context of education includes an infrastructure system, which does require money in order to be able to ensure that certain parts of those systems can be rectified and can include uh, a more inclusive and, and a more collective space. I mean, for example, we want to have and, and have marae on university campuses, which are Maori meeting houses, they require money to build, but they have a spiritual value. So like, uh, in that sense, the, the money is like a gift to my valuing of, of that community, not simply, oh, it's just money itself, you know, it's just sitting there as a form of, it's a recognition of something that's been lost. Because I think the other side is that colonization is symbolic. Um, so no money can ever account for the fact that, you know, uh, when there has been systemic issues or acute issues um, within the education system of oppression, money is not going to be able to compensate for the, the sense of loss that happens within that space. So there's always going to be an element which actually needs to focus on the identity and the relationship uh, between an education institution um, and its students in, in those spaces and its teachers. Um, so I think it's, it's the balance of recognising what is appropriate in that space and the conversation that needs to happen between the communities that have been impacted, all of them in those spaces as to what actually will heal the community, not simply what will help the community, but what will heal this relationship over time um, and the recognition that you know, resources are involved in that conversation, but the first primary element is respect for the human beings in that space. Um, and also a recognition that both the oppressor and the oppressed model need to see where they've had um, difficulties in that space, as I said, self-oppression, um, where, because I've seen other elements where we move to hate sometimes, and hate means that we push for monetary compensation, because it's like, well, then I have resources, and then I can oppose those who have colonized me in the past, but that that's not reconciliation, that is a sense of justice that's based on um, an eye for an eye, so it's an element of what can we create that gives back dignity and gives back a sense of completion to the community um, that doesn't cover over the past hurt, but also recognizes that there has been difficulty and prioritizes dealing with that difficulty. Thank you, Ellen. Thank you so much for what is an enlightening session that will open up several other conversations that need to be had. And on behalf of the executive team, I really want to express our greatest appreciation coming on and mm -hmm. having this conversation with us. I'd like you to give a closing statement in your native tongue, a word to encourage Commonwealth young people, students from member states to embrace local values, their identity, to take steps towards this movement of decolonizing mm -hmm. education. 
Um, I'd love to ask you also to translate at the end so I can know what you said. <clears throat> um, well, unfortunately, I, I do not speak uh, the native language of my ancestry and Te Reo Māori is, is not my um, first language. Um, so in that case, it's probably better that I stick with English because being diaspora, I, I only know enough to be dangerous, uh, oh. which is one of the griefs that we carry within that space, but also yeah. one of the recognitions of like how my heritage has worked. So, um, which is perfectly fine because that is, you know, that is, is part of my story. Um, but I think one of the things that I would really like to encourage people is. I, I really do love that you pay homage to it because for those who have never seen an email from Ellen, you will see words from the language which pays homage and, and, and shows respect, yes? That is for the language of this nation. So that is a commonly done thing in Aotearoa, New Zealand, because of the language of the indigenous people here. Um, yeah. And it's something that we celebrate. You know, we yeah. want to celebrate and uphold Te Reo Māori in this country because it is what we call a, um, and what Māori Dom calls a taonga, a treasure. Language is not as simple as being something that we just talk in. It's a treasure to its community. Mm -hmm. It contains cultural values, social values. Um, so yeah, it's a celebration of that language yes. and it's a very common thing to do in Aotearoa New Zealand. But I think the thing I'd end on is to not be afraid of having these conversations in a transparent way. I know I went over to Europe recently and we started to talk about the elements of decolonization like we did in, in Aotearoa New Zealand. And then I went to Africa and did the same thing. And everyone was like, you have these types of candid conversations. People are allowed to say that they're hurt about things. People are allowed to get angry. And the philosophy in that is, yes, you are allowed to get angry because we are a whanau, even though we are a mixed family who have been thrown together in very awkward circumstances. And we have family members who may have treated us better or not so well from each other. We are in this here together. We are all in what is said in Te Reo Māori, all in the same waka, all in the same boat. Um, some of us have come on different boats, I'll be honest, within that space, and some of those boats were treated better than other boats. But I think it's really important to realise that the first part is dealing with the, the fear of talking about it. You know, if we don't talk about it, then nothing ever gets done within these spaces. And not being afraid to talk to someone who may have a differing perspective from yourself um, about that space. And also not being afraid to say, I am angry about oppression, I am hurt about oppression, because it's only through addressing that that we're able to get to so what does that mean for us? What do we want to see in that space? A fearlessness is important for the humanization of people in these spaces. And that starts by me committing to my freedom, me committing to your freedom, me committing to our freedom. Um, so yeah, I think that would be my lasting words in this space. Thank you, Ellen. Thank you. I have no more words because I need to allow you to soak in and perhaps put this on repeat for another time. <laughs> Until our next episode of the CSA Fireside, in Jamaica, we'd say walk good. <laughs> Take care. Thanks. <laughs>